Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and you know it is Wednesday at five o'clock Central Time. So that usually indicates Dr. Peter Kapsner would be with me in studio, and in fact, he is. Peter, hi. Hi, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, we have enjoyed our time together studying uh, salvation, and then we did about a six-month study on the on prayer, which was fantastic. It really was fantastic. And then we said in May we were going to pick a different topic every week before we restart a new series. And plan A fell through yesterday, so here we are, a couple of sweaty guys trying to figure out how to salvage plan B. Is it a plan B? It seems no, like it's no, about it... plan G at this point, is it not? <laughs> I mean, we're well into the alphabet at this point, I think, Bill. <laughs> no, but there's uh, there's so much to draw from. And one of the things that you had mentioned to me was in your last class uh, with your students, you sort of opened it up to questions. And I was intrigued because you said it was on fire. You know, it was. It's a, it's an ethics class. This specific class was, was going into topics about how does the church respond to different issues within the culture. And so it could be topics uh, within the bioethics sphere, things yep. like abortion or euthanasia or capital punishment. It can be in terms of social justice and warfare and uh, environmental concerns. There's just a number of topics that this class covers. And I, I, about five years ago, I stopped doing just straight lecture because I get bored listening to myself after a couple minutes, and I know the <laughs> students are too. And, and I began to teach uh, much more through dialogue and questions where even I didn't know how we were going to get to the content. And that was part of the fun of it. And the students could sense that. And, and over the course of a semester, you really develop a rapport. And in the last day of class last week, because we just finished our finals, I just said, all right, carte blanche, have at it. Mm-hmm. We got 100 minutes together. Whatever you want to ask about life, faith, Christianity, theology, church, ethics, it doesn't matter. You just open up the box. I'll tell you what, that 100 minutes, uh, it was the, the buzz. I, I finally sent them into small groups, maybe about 70 minutes into it, and they were just absolutely afire yeah, with so, conversation. So it, was, thought, it was fascinating to yeah, see. So I thought, let's do that with our listening audience today. I love that. Let's have a carte blanche open up. Uh, we'll ask uh, ask anything you want. Absolutely. It's, it, it, when, when people feel like the freedom to finally just ask the questions that they maybe have thought about, because I mean, Christians are not dumb. No, you, I mean, people smart. sit and have conversations with friends and with family members, and they say things about life and, again, faith and church and family, but they don't always know where to go with those things in even a constructive kind of way. And, again, once that box was opened, it was just delightful with the students. Mm-hmm. Let's get started with this idea um, that there is a disconnect from concerns of actual life and what what we're hearing at church. Well, I think what I found, and, and it wasn't just this last Thursday yeah. that I was in class, what I found over the course of the semester that maybe the kinds of things that would concern me in, in matters of faith and relationships and who God is and how we do life in this world, as a, as a person who's not in the next generation, those concerns really matter. Like the concerns of my generation um, and your generation, they matter, but they are different concerns 
than the generation of the 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. That also matters. So this is sometimes we pit the older generation against the younger generation as if one set of concerns matters more than the other. All we're talking about is a very different set of concerns. And, and when young people find their way into some organized expression of church nowadays, one of the most common things that they say is, it's not that those things are unimportant. They matter. Whatever it is that you're talking about, the people who tend to run the church that usually are between 38 and, and 68 years old, are just different than the stuff that we're wrestling with with our friends and with social media. And uh, so they, they care deeply. It's so confused around sexuality, obviously, right? I mean, if I showed you my sex, uh, sexuality syllabus from 2010 compared it to 2021, they you wouldn't even be able to see that they're the same class, just all of what's had to be added to the table since that time. Environmental concerns. Why, why should we care about the environment? Um, religious pluralism, because so many of their friends are of different faith or have no faith at all. Uh, these things are often, among other topics, not really being covered very effectively in their mind by the organized church. And then, of course, we've had this global pandemic, right, that has yeah. kept us from really meeting together. And the combination is a lot of young people, I think, feel very adrift, anchorless. They don't know what voices to go to to help these very complicated and complex issues to help them through some of those things. So that's what we noticed in class last week. Mm-hmm. What about the disconnected lives of individualism? I think that's the biggest thing. We sat um, uh, yesterday in, in my final class with them. We actually had, had a chance to have class outside. It was the first time I've ever, nice. in 18 years as a professor, I had a class outside. And we sat in this. Trying to figure out why you're tan. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's summer, Bill. And, uh, and you know, I've already got the sandals. I'm sipping iced okay. tea already. I mean, I'm All 24 right. hours removed from the, this final. But we sat out in, in the screen space at the University of Northwestern St. Paul and and talked about that. And, and the fir- one of the first student questions was, and the, <laughs> this was not a very smart question because he said, so Kapsner, if you were in charge of a denomination, how would you run it? Because we had just had all these conversations about the church. And I thought, mm, you might be asking the wrong person here. <laughs> but uh, I said, one of the biggest things, independent of theological questions, independent of social issues questions, independent of maybe different ways of understanding the world than previous generations, the single biggest thing that's affecting young people is they feel terribly isolated, terribly alone, and they mm-hmm. don't really know who their who is part of their story, what their story even is. And and so I'm sure you've talked about this on your show a number of different times, just how isolating social media is, how isolating um, even just technology in general can be for them. And then the biggest thing is they're so geographically dispersed. And so it's hard to just have natural relationships with people. And, and I experienced that too. Some of my very best friends are 20 miles away, which means basically I have to set up a play date just to, just to see people that I care about. Whereas we have one person that lives in the same neighborhood that we're friends with and just simply doing life together. Like we probably, many of us that are, are here today and listening to your show can remember the time when we just simply shared neighborhood space. Mm-hmm. And so in the time of sharing neighborhood space, all kinds of life would happen together it didn't happen in two-hour bursts as we met at a coffee shop once every six weeks just trying to catch up. And their life is once every six weeks at a, at a coffee shop just trying to catch up while then they spend so much of their time out on social media and they feel isolated and fragmented alone. And so I told them, I said, I don't know how to fix the geographic dispersion question where we can begin to have some some closed in space together and live life together without it becoming some weird commune, right? Where we're all going to buy 40 acres somewhere. And, <laughs> and, and nobody wants to do that. I understand that. But, but I don't know what the remedies are to the intense loneliness among young people. But I think that that matters for them far more than their theological and social questions do. They don't know to whom they belong. And so 
that loneliness just pervades their day. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That's disturbing to me to hear that that is something that students struggle with is this idea of loneliness. Yeah, especially Could you when... imagine when you were in college? I mean, you had friends everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere. Galore. Yeah, and 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 it's so confusing, right? Because in theory, they're interacting with somebody, it seems like, all day long on Instagram or TikTok or these different social media sites, and yet they're not actually interacting with people. They're not actually doing life with people. And uh, and and I don't want to romanticize the 1970s and 80s when when I grew up unduly, but mm-hmm. there was something sort of sweet about coming home from school each day and knowing that the neighborhood mom across the street had her eyes on me just as much as my own mom did. And, and yeah. you felt part of something bigger and you felt sort of protected and had an umbrella over you. They don't have that same sense of umbrella protection. They're just stranded out there. Not all of them, but I mean, this is the common pattern, which is why... The rise of depression yeah. and anxiety and suicide, all of those things are going through You the were as accountable to that mom as you were to your own mom. For sure. If I, she gave you an order, it was for you to obey it. Oh, man. There, <laughs> there, is, there is a mom at the corner of the street. If I, if I broke 11 miles an hour coming around the corner <laughs> of my car, I was going to hear about it that day. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Let me take a little break. We've got plenty of time to uh, answer questions today. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I are enjoying this time together. And... As he was teaching his final ethics class, uh, he opened up a carte blanche invitation, and boy, did the questions pile in. So if you have a question, let me know what it is. You can send it over to 877-933-2484. Anything goes. Be right back. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I, and Peter, you teach a, an ethics class, you teach a sexuality class here at the University of Northwestern. Does that sound right? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yep. I sort of teach whatever they tell me to teach. Yeah, exactly. and, and so it's, it's news to me each semester <laughs> as well, but those are generally the ones that I'm involved with. Yeah, yeah. and nobody seems to be lining up to take the sexuality class from me, so that, that is one that I'll have for a while, I think. Yeah, that's, and that's packed, isn't it? It is. It's really interesting. It's actually an elective for students. I don't think it has to be yep. a part of the major criteria. And, and there's not a semester that goes by, basically, where it, there's 30 students a lot in the class. Usually there's five on the waiting list and more to come. And it just speaks to, to the incredible interest that students have in this. So. Yeah. yeah. So any questions you have for us today? When I say us, I mean Peter. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I did get a question for me. I don't know if I'll address it or not. But well, well, I mean, we'll just follow the lead of the spirit, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. indeed. Here's a question. What are your thoughts on the quote, the rules and traditions of men get in the way of the power and life of God in our life. Wayne Jacobson points toward the fact that the tradition, guilt, and shame that the church can put on us really have a damaging effect on how we view the Father. Yeah, I, boy, that's such a good question. I, I don't know for sure maybe what traditions we're talking about that would damage our view of the Father. I think what we can say about traditions in general is that when they are just practices and ways of life, ways to engage with our faith, they can be really helpful sort of wineskins for us or, or vehicles that we can engage with in in our in growing in our faith. And so some of those things might be uh, the way we do communion or some of those things might be the way we do baptism. Uh, some of those things might be the way we do a quiet time and that's fine. But I think what tends to happen, and I don't always know why and what is the driving motivation of this bill, but it there, there, there goes from like, this is just a way of life to now sort of a dogmatic 
reality that decide that sort of determines who is in and who is out. Mm-hmm. And and you now have to live by these traditions. And and if you break the rules, written and unwritten, otherwise then you sort of are on the outs in the church. And, and it happens often. Sometimes churches will say things like, well, this is our way of life here. And if you don't like it, there's another church down the street just for you to go to kind of thing. And, and that really hurts people a lot who have invested time, energy, sweat, blood, tears in, into a church body. And, and suddenly there'll be a new direction. And it's a tradition that we're going to do. And, and I've seen that happen in lots of different kinds of churches. And I think we always have to be careful not to make idols out of man-made traditions, while at times we can say that, you know, these ways of practicing our faith can be really helpful. But as soon as it plays, it goes into a place of idolatry, mm-hmm. it gets really dicey really fast because the point of any of it is to engage with our Father in Heaven who's actually real and, and actually is our shepherd in, in life. And, and so to we swap stuff so easily, don't we? Mm-hmm. we? We swap that dynamic relationship with God for any number of practices, and pretty soon they become idols. Mm-hmm. Another question that came in was, would I be willing to share my testimony on how I came to faith? I love and, that. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I grew up loving going to church, and my mother pointed me right to my Heavenly Father. But as I was taking a class in seventh grade, the teacher uh, had us... Uh, memorize First John one nine and yeah. talk specifically about you are raised to love and believe in God, but there comes a time where you make your own personal decision. You own your own faith. You say this is not a function of my family anymore. It's a decision I'm making on my own to repent of my sin and, and ask Christ into my life. And I did that when I was thirteen. Mm. And I look back now and I think, boy, did God spare me from a lot of difficulty? Because as I'm entering high school. I felt very grounded in my faith at a very young age, and I found tremendous fellowship in high school. I mean, it was actually kind of cool to be involved in Bible studies at my high school. Mm. There was like this very cool, positive peer pressure. Yeah, that gives me goosebumps a little bit to hear that that at such an early age, because it's a somewhat similar story, and actually that same verse my, my dad had brought to me at an early really? age, too. Yeah, I didn't know that about about your story, and, and I remember that part of it, and and it's funny how God will interact with kids at right where they are. They they don't have to be theologically astute. God just comes in and somehow in, in the mysterious real ways that God does these things, he does give us a, a foundation stone as as young kids that can say yes to following Jesus. And, and Bill, I had a similar experience going through um, youth group where it was sort of cool to be at youth group. But it, mm-hmm. for me, it was in the city of Wyzetta, a western suburb here of Minneapolis. It was a pretty kind of, it was kind of a village back then. And so the same people that I went to youth group with were also the same people that I went to school with were also the same people that I played sports with, that I was in neighborhoods with, that I was working jobs with. And the idea of living in Wyzetta of going to Maple Grove, which is about 20 miles north, maybe 15 miles north of Wyzetta, it was, it was pack a lunch, stay overnight kind of, <laughs> kind of life back then yeah. because we just weren't so mobile all the time. And now we don't even think about crossing 30, 40 minutes across in a city just to commute somewhere. And and it goes back to what we were saying in the first segment. I, I just, that contained village life. Now, there can be problems with that too, but there is no question the community that I was a part of, and there is no question I had a lot of different voices in my life. There, there's a passage in Proverbs, I'm sure our listeners are familiar with it, but it says, uh, train up your child in the way they should go, and, and when they're old, they won't quickly depart. And I think sometimes when we look at that passage, we think, well, we just have to teach them the right doctrine and make sure we get a few Bible verses into them kind of thing. And, and maybe that's true. But in, in ancient Jewish thinking, to train somebody up uh, within the Hebrew, it literally means sort of hedge them in. It's, it's, it's like taking a, a proper 
English hedge. If you've ever driven down roads in the UK, you can't even really see outside of the road that you're on mm-hmm. because the hedges are so thick and you can't look over the top of them. And so it just hedges you in. And, and so it's the idea of hedge your children in with the voices of the community around them. And when they're old, they will not quickly depart. And I think you and I both were probably really, it doesn't mean we didn't make a ton of mistakes growing up, but I never doubted that I had a hedge around me yeah. all throughout growing up. And and so that goes back to some of our conversation is how do we help create the hedges for our young people? And, and Hallie and I have tried to do that with our kids with varying degree of success so that they have voices that lead them along the way. And that's really the invitation here. Mm-hmm. I was felt so uh, blessed not that I don't want to overuse that word, but I go into a fairly large public high school, and first thing you want to do is find some friends, you know, right? Of course, find a group that you can sort of hang with. And the group that I started to hang with invited me to a, a party, and I went there, and there was this invitation to smoke pot, and mm-hmm. I said, "No, I'm not going to do that." And I just left the party right up there on the spot, walked home feeling very disillusioned. And then I had to sort of fake it for a couple of years where I'd get on my bike on Saturday night (laughs) and go somewhere and, and, you know, just drive away from home for a while and then come back and my mom would say, well, you're home early. I go, yeah, there's nothing going on. And the truth is there was a lot going on. I just wasn't included or I wasn't including myself. And I remember my mom just sort of sharing with me how um, glad she was that I was despite maybe not having a lot of social life at the time that I was staying true to my faith. And and that was a very tender moment uh, yeah. with my mom and I. Well, and I would think very formative, right? I oh, mean, yeah. those are, I just, it's, it's funny. Again, now here we are, we're, we're live on radio going back and forth with our life in ways that we didn't know. But I spent yeah. my whole senior year alone for very similar reasons. It was sort of the height of popularity. And then my friends started into that party scene that you described. And yeah. I chose not to I spent most of my Friday and Saturday nights by myself, my senior year. And, but that was really formative too. And I learned to maybe not run with the herd. Mm-hmm. And, and I think when you, you know, to the people to whom you belong, whether it's parents or some really close friends, then you don't have to try to run with the herd in order to find your sense of belonging, even though it is painful. I mean, for young people, right. To not feel like they belong, that is such a painful reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I yeah. didn't know that about you. I didn't know you had that senior year experience that way. Yeah, I mean, I know it's shocking to, to think that maybe I was really close to being homecoming royalty as a, as a sophomore. That, that's a shocking <laughs> thing. But but going from that place to literally waiting for the phone to ring on a Friday or Saturday night, but not, but I didn't want to hit the party scene in order to sacrifice the sweetness of the true voices of my hedge. So, All right. I think we got another question here that's just come in. Let's see. I have it. No, I don't. But anyway, um, <laughs> they're coming in. We just yeah, the, the text line in. is down a little bit. We have some technical difficulties oh, I'm here. I'm having some some real technical difficulties, so uh, that's too bad. All right, uh, here we go. My daughter is taking an online master's degree class uh, from Northwestern in ministry leadership. She's hmm. getting the distinct impression in her forum discussions that male headship is a chiseled in stone belief that is a non-starter for deeper discussions. Thoughts. <laughs> Is it break time yet? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> see, is there any way let's, to filibuster over the next a, four and a half minutes or so? Play a long bumper. Yeah, I would say so that you have some cool jazz that you often play. No, yeah. it's, you know, I, so I think what's interesting about moving to university status, uh, and I've taught in both Bible colleges and I've taught at universities, and, and the difference between them is that Bible colleges are meant to be places where you're taught certain beliefs as being true, and that's how you learn. At university, 
there's something that uh, that changes where it's the name of academic freedom, you can explore different beliefs and, and aren't necessarily supposed to dogmatically teach one singular belief in issues like this. And so uh, I don't know what class she is in. I don't know what professor she might have. I just know when we talk about gender and sexuality and women in ministry and some of these topics that inevitably come up in my mm-hmm. classes, I try to fairly represent both sides of the story because both sides, you can have biblically faithful scholars on both sides of these issues, looking at the very same text and coming to different conclusions about the text without trying to be progressive or trying to warp the text or doing that. The text is not always easy to interpret, which is why I often say on your show, Bill, that the, the Bible is authoritative. I believe that down to my toes. And, and the more I've dug into it over the years, the more unbelievable, what, what a gift it is. And, and yet a given interpretation of the Bible is not necessarily authoritative. And so one of them's got to be wrong. Either you have male headship or you don't. You, that, that's sort of a binary choice. And in some of the passages, um, you have legitimate support that that could be a way of understanding them. And other passages would say, or other scholars would say, no, there's there's different ways of understanding this. So it's a tricky issue. And again, I don't know what class she would be referencing, but I know in my class, I would not be teaching dogmatically that that's the way I would I would talk about the merits of it and I would give them the tools to study it. But I wouldn't be saying this is the way you have to think or you can't get an A or B or C. That would be more of a Bible college approach. Mm-hmm. Um, we're supposed to have academic freedom at university life. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. If you've got a question, just like the way Peter opened it up to his class and got lots of input, we'd love to hear from you. Whatever question you might have, let me know. We'll pass it on. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Just talking about my mom reminds me that we are still, throughout this whole month of May, blessing both moms and mentors so if you have a mom or a stepmom or maybe an aunt or maybe it was a coach or a very godly woman from your church and her love just meant the world to you, you, know, you can let her know by nominating her at MyFaithRadio.com. You can head over to MyFaithRadio.com. There's a place where you can nominate that special mom or woman in your life and we'll put her name in the drawing Uh, for this uh, pretty cool special gift set giveaway that we have. I have not seen what the gift set giveaway is quite yet. I'm sure it's special. I'm sure there'll be a puppy in there for sure. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah, we we invested in a number of puppies here at Faith Radio, did we not? It's a little awkward in the studio. We (laughs) we have to move them out at some point, right? (laughs) There's lots of good stuff. But again, let me know what questions you have for Peter and I. Uh, And when I say that, I mean Peter, 877-933-2484. Or if you like that uh, old-fashioned email thing, you can do that as well. Bill at MyFaithRadio.com. Bill at MyFaithRadio.com. We're also got these generous amount of Fields of Gold books that Andy Stanley wrote. And if you would like to have one of those, just head over to MyFaithRadio.com as well. I think we got plenty of copies to give away. You can enter to get one. All right, we'll take a short break and be right back. We'd love to get your questions. Help me, Lord, I'm feeling low. I'm feeling low. 
So glad that you've joined us today. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I occupy this space Wednesdays at 5, and we are going to start a new series, I think in June or July, maybe. Yeah, very much looking forward to that. Yeah, but we're gonna, we've got some really nice guests coming up. Uh, we're going to have Dr. Michael Heiser back on because he's... St- he crushed it last week. He really did. Those hornets are still buzzing around <laughs> yeah. here. He was great last yeah. week. And we're going to have Dr. Eric uh, Tanis on. Good. He's going to talk about humor with us. That'll be fun. Yeah, he has a book about that. Either coming, I think it's coming out this fall, right? Uh, is it a book or is it like a brochure? Oh, it's not, when it was 20 things of something, it sounds more like a brochure. But, no, this but is an article he wrote. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah, it was oh, excellent. I sent it to you. You didn't read it, but that's okay. <laughs> I, I will. It was yeah. just yes. Yeah. So what is the Church of the Future going to maybe look like? You know, it's it's tough to say. I think that uh, having lived in Scotland for a fairly extended period of time, that and, and this is something we've talked about before too, is just that however secular Europe is, America's on the way to that same level of secularization. And, and what I mean by that is that the church doesn't exert the same level of social presence and social influence in our lives. So when you and I were talking earlier about growing up, there's a sense in which <clears throat> we are going to be spending our weeks going to church on on some level during the week, right? And I'm sure some of our listeners have stories of being at church on Wednesday, prayer meeting on Friday, both services on Sunday, the potluck afterwards with the casserole, and then Sunday evening service, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, and so church, the center hub of your life really did revolve around your faith community. Well, that changed in one generation in Europe. Uh, it's the it, it was described as going from people of the book to people of just sort of nothing mm-hmm. within one generation. And, and we, the, the, the breathtaking speed with which that is happening here in our culture too, as evidenced by all the statistics of religious nuns, people not attending church in the next generation, all of that. So it really does beg the question, what does that church look like? And I don't know, I mean, can't tell for sure, but right. But I, <laughs> I would say if, if it takes any of similar form as it does in like places in Europe is that it tends to be very small communities of faith that are under no illusion anymore that they're trying to blend their faith with uh, with their worldly desires and and in ways of doing life. So they meet together still pretty often, and they tend to be a little bit more geographically together. They're not so dispersed all over the place. And uh, there's some really unbelievably beautiful and sweet communities of faith that we've had a chance to be a part of in different places in Europe that are very vibrant. And you look at places like China, where, again, you have believers, they're kind of living this catacomb life. If you and I were to start a church tomorrow, which would be, I think, a a terrible idea, just (laughs) qualifier aside, but if we called it the catacombs, right? It's just the place for believers together, where increasingly, I think, our, our faith is going to be under attack. But when that has happened in the history of the church over 2,000 years, that is when the faith has shined the brightest. That is mm-hmm. when Christianity has blossomed in some in some really powerful ways. So I, I think the church of the future is probably a lot of smaller communities uh, of people that aren't any under any illusion anymore that, that it's some big thing that they're part of. They're, mm-hmm. It's just their faith. Yeah. Another listener, Peter, jumped in with, thank you for sharing your testimonies. Many of my Friday and Saturday nights were very similar. Mm. Did you guys ever find like-minded youth group members to hang with? Yeah, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I did for a season. Mm-hmm. And and it's funny because, um, and I don't know about you, but if I just had one or two authentically good friends, it was it always did better. It did more for my soul than running with the herd. Mm-hmm. And, and running with the herd was terribly lonely. You just, again, you kind of feel like a, a misfit all the time. At least I did when I would then try to maybe go to a party or two. I just felt like this is worse. And, and so to just hang with one or two really good friends, I've actually found that 
in life in general since that yeah. time. To have just a couple of good friends is really all I need. Yeah, it's so true. When I was in high school, there was a Bible study that happened on Monday nights, and it was usually in the basement of someone who had a bigger house because there was probably 50 or 60 kids that slammed into this basement. Unbelievable. Yeah, and the teaching leader uh, was the guy that really kind of led me to a, a saving faith, and he would walk in and sort of greet everybody and say, hello, let's open our Bibles now to John chapter 3. There, there wasn't games. There wasn't anything. And everyone in the room had a Bible. And we're 15 or 16 or 17. And to me, I think it's, it's, it's almost hard to share that with people to think all we did was study the Bible. We didn't play games. We didn't play loud music. We didn't do anything. Right. Yeah. I, I, that was another thing that would have come out from my classes all throughout the semester is the deep hunger for things that matter. And and I'm not sure why. And, and again, I'm not against multiple versions of M M&M and M bowls, you know, at youth group, right? Like <laughs> right, I, I won't right. dip my hands in any of the versions of the M and Ms. But but I think we underestimate both what young people are capable of and what they actually desire. And and while young people do love their Mountain Dew and their Foursquare and their floor right. hockey and all of those sorts of things, there is such an existential angst that is present that that, that God's word and people, uh, the shepherds of faith. They really matter. I mean, I'm sure that if we had all the listeners here sitting with us, they could point to one or two or three people who were really wise people in their life that really shepherded them in the places that matter, that maybe played games with them, sure. Oh, sure. But, but they absolutely did what you just described, Bill. They were able to break open God's Word. And the level of biblical illiteracy that I've experienced, even in the last 15 years, has really shifted, where if I asked my classes who King Solomon was maybe 15 years ago, and I would do this in some of my Intro to Bible classes, probably... 25 or 26 out of 30 would raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm at least familiar with King Solomon. The most recent time that I did it, I think I was nine. Uh, there was nine students in class. And, and I've shared that story before, but what that is, is it's representative of um, not being able to find the right shepherding voices in these really difficult questions. And, and when they're reduced down to maybe a Wikipedia article or the first page of Google or, or some blogger that they like, it's not the same as having authentic shepherds and mentors in their life that are really getting into these things with them. Yeah. Here's another question, Peter. What suggestions do you have for how I can relate lovingly and redemptively with transgender neighbors? Yeah, that's a big one, isn't it? That's a big one. That's a really big one. Yeah. I think that we we probably can uh, and and maybe should someday do a a whole hour on that. But I think one of the things that uh, I had a, a, a... biblical leader in my life sort of point on the scripture and, and he pointed out this way. He, he said, you know, part of our faith is asking the question, do you know what time it is? And what he meant by that is, is that uh, in, in God's kingdom, things are always going to be true. We don't have to worry about that, but do you know what time it is in terms of how do we then interact with the people around us? Because not every situation requires the same kind of response within the truth of God's kingdom. And, and I say that as background because I think the time that we're living right now is a little bit of the long game. I, I think, again, some of what my young people expressed in these last couple of months is that they don't feel like the church has a moral voice of authority or credibility around issues of sexuality in particular, just simply because of what we sometimes cover on this station, which is the moral failings of the leadership and maybe some shoutiness at people and, and some anger in some ways that people have been treated. And so there's not really a moral voice there. And what I counsel my young people to say is, do you know what time it is? And, and do you know what time it is in the relationship that you have? Are you, 
Um, do you need to like enter in and say all sorts of stuff about how wrong they are? Or do you just simply walk alongside of them for a while, trusting that God will open windows when God will open windows in the situation? And, and I think that the macro time that we're in in sexuality right now is from the standpoint of history, this is not the first time we've seen transgenderism showing up. This is not the first time we've seen same gender relationships show up and begin to run roughshod in a society. And what always happens is those things come to an end. They implode because they're just not sustainable. They're not consistent with God's kingdom. And when they implode is then it's sort of the pigsty moment of the prodigal son. And at that moment, when the, when the pigsty moment happens, which will inevitably happen in all of this, we as the people of faith have to have that same posture of the father looking out in the horizon that will be w- willing to welcome the people back in and, and not just welcome them, but, but celebrate and be there with them, not celebrate their transgenderism, not se- but just celebrate that they're coming back home. And and But we have a lot of work to do, I would say, as believers ourselves right now with the divorce rates that we deal with that is so hard, the, the porn, uh, pornography addictions that we have, the, the confusion, the moral failings, all of that. We have a season where I think we can get our house in order, uh, maybe 5, 10, 15 year season. But right now, how do we handle our neighbors? I haven't experienced too many people. I'm sure there's stories. But for most people, I think we just need to keep walking on, alongside and wait for that window to open. And when it does, be prepared to give an account to witness. But I don't feel like we have to just shove that window open all the time. You know, just trust that God will know what time it is. And you might be that ambassador of reconciliation in those moments. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great comment, Peter. Another question, like most people, I struggle to understand the Trinity. One question I have is whether and when it is important to know which member of the Trinity is being referenced in a passage. For mm. example... I know the Lamb of God is Jesus. And what about Almighty God? How does one know? Or does it matter since they are one? Also, can you recommend a book or two on the Trinity? Boy, I, that's a tricky one, right? I mean, anybody yeah. that can sort out the Trinity, that would be the first uh, <laughs> in terms of doing that in a way that... And You're we, welcome I'm, on my show, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. i my schedule. Yeah, I, that's, I mean it's hard because we can dip so easily into some of the historical heresies of our faith where we, where we unduly separate the Trinity into three members. And then we have almost three gods that we're worshiping. But if we don't understand that this is a relational God at God's very core of father, son, and spirit, all interdependent, but separate somehow, that's that just, it, it's a little bit too much for us to be able to take in. Does it matter to know who's doing what in the text? I, mm, I mean, the church hasn't ever really been fussed by that over the years that you haven't, Typically, when there's things that really tend to matter in in our faith expression, you're going to find seasons of theological inquiry over these 2,000 years where church leaders really wrestled with stuff. And and we just don't have that precedent of history other than one great schism where they wondered if if the Spirit really flowed from the Father and the Son or the Spirit was truly a third member of the Trinity and that broke up the East and the West and a bunch of stuff like that. But I don't don't think it matters for sure to know. I, I do think, and you and I have talked about it, that I can't remember what guest it was that had a book. Was it Randy Newman that had a book about um, the, all the names of God? Mm-hmm. Uh, God the Father? I don't know if you remember that, but one of the guests in the Salvation Series yeah. was talking about the 200 plus names of God the Father in the Old Testament. I bought, I that, think book. That, I bought that book. You did buy that yes, book. I, I think that would be a fascinating thing because God is always referencing in his interactions with the world a different like sort of name for himself. And that really matters. I think we would understand God a lot more. Yeah. I, I would love to tell you what that book is, but I don't know where it is. <laughs> I don't know where my keys are right now. <laughs> right. That, that would be a lot to ask. I know for both of us. So yeah. 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 Uh, Peter has mentioned that youth groups don't cover a lot of important topics based on what the kids in his class say, what topics would be best for me to cover in youth group? 
Well, big that, question. Yeah, that is a big question. I, I think I think one of the things that we have to uh, is how equipped do we feel to cover them. Like I, I would say if I was in. Um, a hospital setting, it would probably be good to cover brain surgery on some level, but I would have no idea how to do it. Right. Right. And so I think even before <laughs> we ask that question, we have to ask the question, how equipped do we really feel on some of these topics? And, and I'll say this, that even with all my fancy letters and my fancy research and all of that, I step into conversations on environmental theology or I step into conversations on um, bioethics or, or into sexuality. And it takes me years. It, when the, I remember it was 2014, and that was the year that the Obergefell Amendment, I think, passed and made gay marriage the law of our land. And when I opened up the class for questions at that point, it was the first time in five or six years that I was getting questions on same-gender relationships. And, and prior to that, nobody was asking me any questions on that. And I, I looked at the students. I said, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to say in response to all of this because I didn't feel like I had been equipped well mm-hmm. enough to deal with that. And and so it really took me almost 15 months of research um, through science and psychology and the scriptures and, and church tradition and human experience and just so many different things to come with what, with a coherent response. And so, I mean, the topics are all there that the youth leaders should cover. Uh, there are, I mean, I, I spend 14 weeks on sexuality alone just in this one class, and that would easily cover a year or two or three in the church. And I, and I really mean that if a church wants to get serious about helping to walk in wholeness and sexuality, I would say it's a minimum of signing up for a three-year process in some meaningful way to do it. Uh, but I think the, the young people, again, they care a lot about how do I understand that m- the God of the Christian faith is different and distinct from Buddhism or Islam or some of where their friends are practicing their faith in the, in the pluralism. So I would say sexuality and pluralism um, response to environmental concerns is a really big deal. Um, equity and social justice, those kinds of ideas and how that's been co-opted by politics when equity and justice means something very different in the scripture. And there's a, there's a beautiful invitation to that. But I think our youth leaders themselves, um, not any different than me, it's not like you come out of the womb ready to deal with this stuff. And, and so you have to walk through a process of getting equipped to deal with it. And I think that usually is about a 12 to month, 15 month process to really do it well. All right. Take a little break. Dr. Peter Kapsner and I, we've got time for a question or two. If you want to send them over, text them to 877-933-2484. Be right back. Forget your troubles and just get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Sing hallelujah, come on, get happy. Hope your afternoon is going well. So glad to have Dr. Peter Kapsner with me in studio. Lots of questions coming in. We've got several. I'm, we're going to have to move fast, Peter. We are. Yeah, be so, a bonus yeah, lightning yeah. round. Uh, here's a listener challenged by a Jehovah's Witness on social media, and he appears to pervert the teachings of the Bible with his Jehovah Witness sources. I continue to defend the accuracy of Scripture with Scripture, but not making a lot of progress. Question is how to exercise the scriptures on sharing and defending our faith, and when do you kick the dust off my feet and move on? <laughs> I think you can kind of sense it in your spirit, right? If there's an open-hearted conversation, it's truly mutual, and people are, are interested in changing their views. But but as you often do to me, Bill, when I call you, you just hang up. I, you know, when, when, well, when I get all I entrenched. Call. Yeah, yeah, if you, <laughs> no. yeah, if you don't ghost me to begin with, right, you just hang up. But I think we know when conversations yeah. are not being productive, and, and I think it's time to move on. Yeah. What are your thoughts on a pastor preaching another pastor's sermons. I've heard a, uh, 
I've heard it called mm-hmm. stealing sermons. For instance, a pastor taking an old recorded sermon of another and preaching it to his church verbatim, including using the same PowerPoint as the other pastor. Does God not give pastors a word to give to his members? Mm. I hope this makes sense. I have a very long answer to that, but I'll try to give you the short one okay. on this one too. Yeah, I, I am. There's very few things that I can't see both sides of the story. I'm, I'm patently against this, I, and it happens, I think, far more frequently than we know. Uh, I know of a church uh, locally where a pastor was sort of found out 15 years in that he'd been doing that about that length of time, and uh, and so I guess two sides of it. One is I have a, a very dear pastoral friend of mine where I will ask him if I can use some of the material, and I will absolutely reference that this was from a sermon from him. And he talks about, you know, imitation is, is flattery and all of that is yeah, in yeah. play. But but you're using permission. You're 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 not pretending to pass it off as your own wisdom. But I think the second part, the little part that the listener just asked at the end about shouldn't a pastor have a word for the community? Yeah. I yes, yeah. absolutely. <clears throat> when I've done in my twenty years of doing sermons, one of the questions that I try to ask, and I don't always do a great job of doing it, but I ask, okay, God. I'm not going to have a canned sermon here. What do your people need in this body at this time? Do I know what time it is to go back to what I said earlier? And, and so you might be breaking up a, a, a Ephesians 2, for example, and you can go 15 different directions with it. But the question is, is what do those people need in this time to be best equipped to do their life moving forward? And so, yeah, I'm fully against I, Pastors are so busy. I get it. Yeah, yeah. You know, all of that. But I'm fully against that practice. Do you think the seven festivals talked about in Leviticus 23 are prophetic? And if so, what? Do the fall festivals look like to you? Yeah, I don't know if they were prophetic, but they clearly um, formed the life of the Jews. It goes back to what we talked about earlier is that part of the the way you know the people you're part of are the practices that you do together, the stories, the myths, and the rituals. And the Jews are very much contained in, in, the, in the Old Testament by their stories and their practices, but it also was foretelling the events that were to come. And so Paul uses language of those festivals to interpret what happened in the life of Jesus. Clearly, Pentecost was a festival of bringing your first fruits. And so the believers on whom the Spirit came were part of this Pentecost moment. They were the first fruits of the resurrected people invited to live a different kind of way of life where the power of sin and death had been beaten. So yeah, there were actual festivals that mattered. And they pointed to the future coming that that was going to be present. Um, Very good. Thank you for that. Um, I'm fascinated by all the different variety of questions that are coming in. It's it's really intriguing right now. It's starting to light up as we get a little bit further into this, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds uh, a little bit like your class. I mean, you had quite a variety of questions that came in. Oh, it was just, you know, and again, it was one after another and and they just wouldn't stop. It was brilliant. I could have sat there for hours with them. Mm -hmm. Here's a question I don't know if I understand. Explain our response as Christians to illegal immigration at our southern border. I don't know what our response is. Yeah, that one's a hot topic enough. I mean, there's, again, that's one I would want to stay away from because we only have a few minutes left here. But I think the big question that we have to ask theologically of ourselves as believers is, uh, the question that Cain was asking God of Abel, who is our brother, right? Who is our sister? Who are the, w- not one country can take care of the entire world. Not one church can take care of an entire city, but what, what, what is our responsibility to the brokenhearted? We are called to bind up the brokenhearted, mm-hmm. but how do we do that responsibly and, and well, and, um, and not turn a blind eye, but not just be carte blanche either. Mm-hmm. Nice answer. Thank you for that. Um, it's going to be, a, you know, I still want to, let listeners know that you your input is so important to us. We've had so much fun in our Salvation Series, and then we talked about prayer for a long time, and things are still coming up in my spirit over 
not only the salvation series but the prayer series yeah it the prayer series in, in particular really kind of rocked my world because there was so much input during the prayer series that gave me so much to chew on and think about and i turned my my prayer life more into a, a worship based prayer versus a lord here is my list of stuff um I'm just going to start asking away. <laughs> I know, right? You know, yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of uh, changing, life-changing for me in terms of my prayer life. And it actually became a lot easier to pray when you start opening up the book of Psalms and you start praying scripture back to God and you start worshiping him and, and, and having a, a scripture-led sort of time of prayer. You don't have to spend a lot of uh, energy. You just open up God's word and start praying it back to him. It really isn't. It was. Well, yeah, fantastic. It, it is. It, it's one of those vehicles that we can use, right? And I remember a m- number of our guests would say, "So just get started. Just do something for a few weeks. You don't when you know. I don't even know what the metrics would be to make somebody a great prayer person, right? But that's not even what the point is. Just sort of get started in the process. And so many of our guests were talking about that, and I and and you and I both and our listeners too talked about just the struggle of prayer. But I think there was something really sweet, like you said, Bill, that happened in that time. And I think one of the things that I, I was really encouraging to me is that, you know, what what if God was actually real? Like, what if, <laughs> what, what if this wasn't a game that we were playing? Yeah. And what if it wasn't a bunch of stuff that we just said that we believed were true? And we do believe that it's true. But but how might it change things if God was actually real? And if that's true and God was accessible, then maybe prayer matters like a lot. And, and maybe there's ways we can engage with it that are just simple and easy. And what you just described in terms of opening up the Psalms, I can't imagine a more, more beautiful way to pray. And prayer changes us. Totally. God knows right? what's on our heart. God knows what our prayer requests are going to be. Yeah. But we feel much more intimate with God when we're getting in prayer. Well, the existential angst that I describe of my young people, uh, I'm 50. I still experience it. You know, yeah, it's not right. like that just goes away somehow. And so, yeah. and prayer really is that the calming of the waters. It's It's the place where the soul begins to settle. And I, it's, it's just amazing to me. I mean, I, I often feel like the ancient Israelites, how quickly they forget, right? They're like two days into the wilderness, like, <laughs> we want to go back to Egypt, you know? And, yeah. and how quickly I forget that prayer really matters. You know, like it just, it does that. It, it changes us, like you said. Mm-hmm. And d- when you came to Saving Faith in Christ, how old were you? I was six when my dad yeah, explained so you, the gospel you, you to knew me. very little about the, about the Bible. Uh, zero. You just had an open heart. God opened your heart to understand that this is something you wanted to do. He really did, Bill. And I remember, like, I still remember exactly the room I was in. I remember my dad explaining stuff to me. I didn't exactly know what was going on for sure, you yeah. know, intellectually and stuff. But my heart was, you know, it was it was definitely rising to something that he yeah. was saying. Yeah, and I had memorized one verse. So I was given an opportunity through an invitation to turn my life over to Christ. And it, and it was... You don't have to know a lot. You have to take a step of faith. Yeah. Well, do we still know the verse? First John 1, 9? That was one of my first yeah. ones if, too, right? If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Ah, yep. That is exactly, that's so interesting. That was very the very first verse that my dad, and that's what he invited me to do. That's what he said. All right. So go ahead in prayer, confess your sins, know God is for you and yeah. he will come. And, and, and I, I, again, I don't know what spiritual cleansing is supposed to feel like, but I, there was something that happened in those moments yeah, with yeah. God, right? I had an incredible flood of peace. It yeah. was a Friday night for me. I had had kind of a, you know, that, that Friday night that there's stuff going on, but you're not included. Yeah, you know, no, right? yeah. Again, I know those Friday nights very well. <laughs> <laughs> and it was clear to me that this was for sure what I wanted to do is pray to receive Christ. And I remember having this peace that came over me that was 
Unbelievable. And then I went about my evening. I think I, I went and watched Partridge Family. <laughs> I did. Well, and you had to, and, and back then you had to be ready for, but you couldn't Tebow or, or no, you know, you stream be or be a Netflix. Like you had to be ready for the <laughs> yes. Partridge Family. Yes, you know? Exactly. So, yeah. And you had like three minutes in between to get the Cheetos at the commercial break. Exactly. And that was that. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. No, but yeah, that same piece, I know the description. And what's interesting, right, is that. Now, even to this day, some 44 years later, that same piece that passes understanding that the scripture talks about, you can still dwell in that same piece. It's the well that you go back to again and again and again. And and I'm sure our listeners know of that well as well, that um, in the midst of the craziness of this life, that is the well of peace that we can find only in this kingdom that Jesus brought about. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, today is your day of salvation. You can read 1 John 1, 9. And you can ask Christ to come into your life, and he will forgive you, and you will become part of his family, which is the yeah. most beautiful day in Love your that. life. Yep. Yeah. That wraps up our show. Peter, thanks so much for being here. It's a delight to be with you. Yeah, always. Yeah, it's always. always fun. Yeah. Yep. And thanks uh, to Marshall Siegel, who was great, and David Wheaton for concluding our study on the book of Genesis. We're going to move into Exodus with him, so we're going to keep going through the Bible. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.